You can be finding Ecclesiastes 3. For those of you that ever wondered if that was actually supposed to be in the Bible, uh, we'll just go there. Uh, so here's the deal. I felt like I got this word a few weeks ago for here, and then we started talking, and my my uh, other two sons are here today, and Pam, Adam, Pam, Aaron are here today. Uh, Adam and Pam came down from Nebraska just to hear me preach. No, they they uh, they came down, and Aaron came over from Springdale, and, and so we knew we were going to have our whole family here, and, and actually, I'll... At first, I wasn't planning on being here today, and then I said, no, I, I can't miss that opportunity and uh, to, for us to all be here together. And, and, uh, but then I told Drew, I feel like I have this word, but I'm, I'm hesitant to preach it with Adam and Aaron there because they haven't heard me preach in years, and I'm pretty sure the last time they heard me preach, I was preaching on revival, and I don't want them to think he literally has one sermon. Uh, and Drew said, well, just tell them, you know, so I'm telling you. But here's the thing. I became more and more convinced that we can't let this moment go by. Some of the things that go ahead and fire that up. And, you know, usually when I come, I just want to get right in the word uh, for the sake of time. But I think I need to take a couple minutes. And, the, and I know you're aware of what's been going on around the country uh, and beginning at Asbury uh, with the revival, and that's that's at Asbury. And if you've been keeping up with it, it reminds me so much of the revival in Wales in 1904, 1905. The preachers aren't in control. A uh, bunch of young people are, and this is why this is spreading because it's Gen Zs kind of in control of it, and they have kind of a leave no man behind mentality. And um, so that's Asbury. Uh, go ahead. That's another one of, of Asbury. Um, that's Texas A&M. Next, that's Baylor, which is even more shocking uh, than Texas A&M because they're religious. Um, that's Texas A&M. Kyle Field, Texas A&M. Texas A&M, once again, those are all Texas A&M, and they're having a, a revival service April 29th at Oklahoma Memorial Stadium where OU plays football. Um, it seats 88,000 people, uh, and it's booked for a revival service. Um, and what I'm saying is, is that this thing is starting and unlike the 90s, and I remember about a year and a half ago, I was here, and Drew wanted me to specifically come and talk about revival. And I said, you know, we made a lot of mistakes in revival, and there was a lot of stuff that went on that maybe wasn't God. And But I would do it all again, even with all the mistakes, just have revival. Wesley said, Lord, send us revival with no defects, but if you can't do that, send us a revival with defects because we need revival. And uh, But... If we could get it right, and it could not be about superstar evangelists showing off their gifts and, and all of that stuff, if it could just be about people being hungry 
for God. And that's what this is. These kids are just, uh, they just want God. And when you hear the descriptions of what's going on, it literally sounds like whales. Some of the posts literally could be lifted out of a history book. And uh, because uh, 2 million people are in Wales in 1904, 200,000 were saved in 18 months. That would be like 40 million Americans getting saved uh, in the next year and a half. And, um, and it, was, it was mostly young people, young adults, and, and no personalities. They would, I mean, they didn't even preach unless the Lord told them to preach. They'd just go sit and wait on the Lord. And so I, I, I take that five minutes just to, I guess, justify what I'm doing today uh, to my sons. And the rest of you can sit through it. Ezekiel chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, Time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. It's talking about building. There's time not to build, there's time to build. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. In that last verse, I looked it up in every English translation I could find. And, and the prevailing wind on it is God seeks to do again what he has done before. That's what that's saying there. He seeks to do again what he's done before. For everything, <clears throat> there is a season. The declaration of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Seasons are an important theme in the scripture. Before there was ever a man, 
God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens and let, there be, let them be for signs and seasons. And then he said in Psalm 104, which is sort of the poetic version of the creation story, he made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows the time of its setting. We as Pentecostal charismatic tribe are particularly among evangelicals, I think the ones that are focused on the idea of seasons. We use it, for instance, to encourage ourselves when we're going through a really hard time that this is not going to last forever. I'm just going through a season. Or to rejoice when we're being really fruitful. Well, now is my season, right? And so we've heard that ever since I've, I've been around us for 43 years now. I hear us talking a lot about seasons. But the preacher here started out in this book talking about work, talking about toil and labor. And some of the words that he used in this passage, he actually is repeating from chapter 1. And what gain, he said, has the worker for his toil? What profit? Everyone say profit. He's saying, what, where's the profit in this? And he's saying what we all know, in the end, we're all just going to break even, right? In the end, nobody's getting out of here with a profit. We're all just going to break even. You brought nothing into this world, the scripture says, and it is certain that you can take nothing out of it. And I said that to someone one day, and they said, yes, brother, but the Bible says that a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And that's true, but the preacher here, Koholet, he wonders, what's the point of that? Even that's futility. He said in Ecclesiastes 2, I hated all my toil in which I will toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Listen, man, I worked hard. I got this stuff. I'm leaving it to this kid, and he's probably going to be an idiot. And uh, I, I, I was forced under duress to read a book by Aristotle a couple weeks ago in school. And uh, Aristotle had an interesting take on happiness, which the word happiness in their, in their culture didn't mean what we th would say. It just meant a good journey, to have a good life. And he said, how do you know if a man has a good life? He said, he said, well, you can't know till right up at the end because if you had a good life right up to the end of the last week, he didn't use the word week, the wheels came off, then he didn't have a good life. I thought, wow, that's pressure. And then he goes further. He says, and you can't even determine it then because maybe his grandson turns out to be a disaster. And so I guess that affects whether you had a good life. If your grandson turns out to be an idiot, Hello, we have a term for that. Your grandfather would be rolling over in his grave, right, if he, could, if he could see you right now. So he concludes, he makes a conclusion because of all this. He says we are take, to take joy out of the process. We're to take joy out of the process. He said, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And what is that? It goes all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis when he said, okay, let's make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion. Let him have dominion over all the earth. 
And so what is the busyness? What is the work that God has given us to be busy with? We are to have dominion over all, the, all the, over all the earth. And that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And he said, so you know what? what? It would be great if you would eat and drink and take pleasure in all your toil. And you guys, some of you that have been around here for years, remember he's telling you this years ago, your job your, that you work, that you get up and go to work every day, is not the attack of the devil against your life. <laughs> Hello. We need to take joy and rejoice in, in, in the work of our hands. It's, he said it's God's gift to you, and he makes this statement here in connection to it. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Hello. All of the different things. Do you realize that almost all of our heroes in the Bible that we look at and, and, and they're kind of role model stuff, almost none of them were preachers. Hello. I mean, Adam was a farmer. Noah was a farmer and a shipbuilder. Abraham was a rancher and a businessman. Joseph worked in politics. Moses was a rancher and a community organizer. Didn't really know what to call him, but that sounded good. David was a shepherd, a military officer, a government official. Even the prophets later were very often something else. Amos was a rancher. Isaiah uh, was in government administration. And even the apostles. When you get over to the apostles, Paul was a tent maker. Some of them were commercial fishermen, although it can be argued that there came a point in time when they, they gave themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Luke, of course, was a physician. And so all these people that we look at and we say, what great men and women of God, they weren't preachers. And then some of them that were, weren't that primarily. And then some of them that were that primarily, weren't that exclusively. And yet we get this mindset like the only work that I can do that matters is preaching. And I know the last time I was here, I preached about people that were called to preach. This message is not contrary to that. Hello. It just means that there's more than that. He specifically notes here there is a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. So he's saying there's a time to plant and a time to harvest because the time to pluck up what is planted is harvest time. If you pluck it up before harvest time, you plucked it up out of season, all right? It wasn't the time, but the time is harvest time. And this, again, is one of the major themes of Scripture in Genesis 8:22, he makes this statement to Noah after they came out of the ark. He said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So seed time and harvest are connected to the seasons. There is a time to plant and there is a time to thrust in the sickle. But if you miss the seed time, you miss the harvest time. All right? In Proverbs it says, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. There is, a, there is a seed time and there's a harvest time. That is what we call the law of the harvest. Everyone say law of the harvest. I want you to, I want you to get that phrase, the law of the harvest, in your mind. Now, to be sure... We are beset with challenges. 
ever since Adam. The Lord said to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will bring forth unto you. And, uh, but he says, but you will eat the plants of the field. But he said, in the sweat of your face you will eat of the ground until you return to it. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so we look at that and go, oh, that's, you know, that's horrible. The ground's cursed. We've got all this going on. But in that judgment is a promise. He said, you will eat the plants of the field. It's going to be a challenge. Kind of mess it up for everybody, but you will eat the plants of the field, just like what he said to Eve. There will be pain in childbearing, but the beautiful thing in that statement is there will be childbearing. All right? And, and so what is that saying to them? You will fulfill the command I gave, which is to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion in the earth. There will be new challenges because of what has happened, but you will do this, all right? So we do have our challenges, but, but it's, it just becomes part of our DNA. It is in our DNA to have dominion over the earth. And the challenges really just seem to stir that up. When you think about it, I was thinking about this all week. When you look at all the, I mean, those of us that are a little older, we are absolutely amazed at the technology that, that some of you that are a little younger just take for granted. It's amazing to us to see all this stuff. And all of it came as men and women who have a, a DNA inside of them that says, I must subdue the earth. All of those inventions came as they pursued that, right? And I had heart surgery a few years ago, and they sent me home with a notebook that was the transcript of the surgery. Like, they, they write the whole thing out, you know? And I said to Rhonda, she said, look, here's your thing. I said, have you looked at it? She said, no, I'm not looking at that. That's, that's weird. So I sat and read the whole thing. I said, hey, come and look at this part. And uh, she said, no, I was living it. And I love the last sentence. The uh, instrument and God's count being confirmed, <laughs> the patient was closed. I said, well, that's comforting to know. They counted even the gauze. They left nothing in there that didn't need to be in there, right? It's awesome. Doctors are awesome. But why, why are they awesome? Because we've been overcoming and taking dominion in the earth. It's, it's in our DNA. It's how we're wired. It is the law of the harvest, all right? You cannot just leave it in the hands of the Lord. Hello? Proverbs 24 says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking in sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The, crown, the ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. And I saw and considered it and looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. It reminded me of a story President Reagan used to tell uh, back when presidents were likable. <laughs> And that's as political as I get. <laughs> but just so you know, I haven't liked one president since Reagan. I mean, he was the first one I voted for, and I thought, this is great. And I haven't liked one since. But uh, 
he, he told a story about the new pastor that, that started pastoring this rural congregation. He's calling on his parishioners, and he comes to this farm of this man, and it's immaculate. Drives up, and it's immaculate. The, everything is just perfect. The grass is perfect. The, the shrubberies are perfect, and the fields look beautiful, and, and the barns are painted. And he, he says, brother, the Lord has given you a beautiful farm. He said, yeah, well, you should have seen it when he had it by itself. Right? You can't just do that. A slack hand, the Bible says, causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. It's the law of the harvest. You have to sow, you have to water if you're going to get to reap. Do you understand? There's a process. But there's something bigger going on here. Everyone say there's something bigger going on. Because these verses were given to a society of farmers. But there's something bigger going on because they also apply to computer programmers and mortgage brokers and factory workers and secretaries and accountants and waitresses and construction workers and pipeliners and truck drivers and school teachers and even the Carroll Electric guys. All right? That... There's a sowing and a reaping. There's a process that you have to work. There's a time for the harvest, but it's preceded by a time for planting. Work the process, take dominion, put the seed in the ground, because where you are at in a few years will be a result of what you sow now. You understand? It's the law of the harvest. If you don't sow at the time of sowing, then you have nothing at the time of reaping. And it doesn't just apply to secular stuff. Now we come into the church, and it applies in the church. We have to sow in the ministry of the church. We get frustrated at the lack of results. The Scripture says, Do not be weary in well-doing, for in due season, everyone say season, you shall reap. So we have to do the stuff, and do it with diligence, and do it with our might. It means all of it, greeters and ushers and nursery workers and children and youth workers and custodial staff and those that do the meals and the worship team and disciple makers and, yes, teaching and preaching, all right? We do it all undergirded by prayer joyfully as long as we live taking pleasure in it for God has given it to us to do. See, the reason most churches aren't thriving is because they aren't planting. This expecting a harvest and doing nothing. But the law of the harvest speaks otherwise. Are you with me? But what if, beloved, what if you plant, you water, you toil, and there seems like there's something bigger bigger going on pushing back at you? frustrating you. Haggai says you have sown much and harvested little. What if, what if that's your reality? Well, we should always seek God to see if we're out of the will of God. It's a, it's a good place to start. If, 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 if you're running against a brick wall and all your efforts, it's always good to seek God and see if we're out of the, out of the will of God. And Joel 1 says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soul, uh, 
wail over Andres for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. So what if we've looked at that aspect and we've sought God to see if we're out of the will of God and we're going, no, I don't think that's the problem. And, so, and because sometimes it's not. Charismatics, all right? Sometimes you can be in the will of God and still it's like you're running uphill in the mud. Hello. Yeah, brother, where God guides, he provides. Yeah, that poem only works in English. Hello. In Greek, it says it this way. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I know how to be full, and I know how to be hungry. Everywhere in all things, I've, I've, I've learned. Why? To, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be hungry. And, and, and Paul, in one of his places where he's describing his accomplishments, he describes fasting and hunger in the same passage which means one was voluntary and one wasn't. In the will of God, full of faith, nothing to eat. Well, God guides, he provides. Hello. What if, just, this is just hypothetical. What if our entire society went mad? and lost their minds? What if there were leaders that were leading the whole thing off in a ditch? Because you got to understand, even these ungodly leaders that don't know God are still in the image of God. That means they still exercise authority and dominion in the earth. It means they can have an impact. What if our culture was turned completely upside down and truth was falling in the streets? What if we like got to a place where people said there's no such thing as objective truth. There's only your truth. Which there's another name for your truth. It's called a lie. What if our, our efforts, our ministries, our churches seem completely impotent? against the sheer onslaught of evil in the land. What if, as Joel said, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten? What if it appears the end is going to be Jeremiah 8, the harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and we are not saved? how we came back here. The pastor of our church in Tulsa had a dream. Voices were crying out in his dream. We're still not saved. We're still not saved. We're still not saved. And he got up and shared that in church and it wrecked me. But I'm an American Christian, so I got over it. And uh, a few months later, I was sitting watching television by myself. The Rhonda and the kids were gone. And, and the Lord spoke to me and said, you need to pray. And, and I literally said to the Lord, I don't have anything to pray about. And suddenly this, this 
vision that this, it wasn't a vision that I saw, but that this pastor had just pressed in on me. I heard these voices, we're still not saved, we're still not saved, we're still not saved. And I knew it was in Arkansas where we had been and left. And so the Lord worked out, we came back, but I was still, I said, we're, we're, not, we're not moving back to start a church. But we're going to go there because, I mean, you don't have to have a church to bring people to Christ, and they're still not saved. So we'll go and witness to a couple people and, and end up baptizing 825 years. But what if they're still not saved? What if we're still surrounded by a community that's still not saved? What if... There doesn't appear to be a way to push against it. Everyone say there's still something bigger going on. We have to remember the words of Jesus. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think we forget that sometimes when we watch the news. All right? That there's something bigger going on. And it's found here in Ecclesiastes 3. He's talking about the work he's given to man, and he's saying he's made everything beautiful in his time. It all matters. The, the job you have and the way you make a living, all that, it all matters. If, 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 if your job is secular, that's because you've made it so. You've, you've divided it up. You've sliced and diced it. You've, you're the one not doing it as unto the Lord. And, uh, but... What if we didn't stop there? He's made everything beautiful in his time. What if we went on to he's put eternity into man's heart? What if we connected to that? What if we connected to the eternal purpose of God in the earth? And he says he put eternity in his heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So he's put something in us, beloved, when we see all this that says this is not the final word. What CNN and Fox and all of them say is not the final word. There was a beginning before this, and this will not be the end. This will not be the end. What, what we're dealing with now will not be the end. Say, so, yeah, but Brother David, we can't find it out. Well, that's in a sense true. Ultimately, we will always know in part and prophesy in part. But the scripture says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for him, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. So we can know some, and what we can't know, we can still have. Hello, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. So here's the deal. We've been talking for a few minutes now about the law of the harvest. But if we're going to connect to this piece, the eternity that he's put in our heart, we have to transcend the law of the harvest. John 4, 35, Jesus said, Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
Matthew 9, 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Everyone say Lord of the harvest. To send out laborers into his harvest. So my... We must transcend the law of the harvest. How do we do that? We have to connect to the Lord of the harvest. We have to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Yeah, but he said, just pray for him to send workers. No, no, it's, it's, he didn't say what we needed workers. What we need are workers that he sent, which are workers that are connected to that eternity in their hearts. They're connecting to that. They're touching it. They're in touch with it. They understand it. And so therefore they're able to transcend because see their physical eyes, they were looking and they were saying, you know, there's four months and yet comes harvest. And, and you know what? That's, I mean, they weren't dumb. That was, that was literally a reality of what they were looking at with their physical eyes. So when he said, lift up your eyes, he's not talking about the physical eyes that there's a, there's a harvest that's ready and that the sower and reaper are rejoicing together. That doesn't happen unless someone abrogates the law of the harvest. All right? Amos 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, that's a reaper, him who sows the seed, that's the plowman. So he's saying the reaper's going to overtake the sower and the sower's going to overtake the reaper, both directions. Why am I going to do that? So you can't figure out what's going on and try to do it your own way. God said there's a point at which I just rise up all above the laws that I put in place. Hello. The Lord of the harvest, what's needed? Remember one day... Jesus, as I was walking along, and the Pharisees came and said, uh, you know what, you're violating the law of the Sabbath. What did he say to them? Well, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You, me, you know. <laughs> the Lord of the Sabbath takes priority over the law of the Sabbath, and that's what's going on here. We have the law of the harvest. That's the way things work. S- sowing, watering, reaping. And, and, and I think we've, we've made the case for that, and I'm not telling you to stop. Not telling you to stop sowing, to stop laboring, to stop toiling, to stop doing any of that. What I'm simply saying is to turn a nation, to have something more than just a good church, to see a nation turn back to God, we need something beyond we sowed, we toiled, And praise God, we harvested. We grew another 20 people this year. No, we need something beyond that. In order to turn a nation back to God, we need the Lord of the harvest to come and completely turn the law of the harvest on its ear. Everyone that looks at historical revivals and says that there was some kind of direct connection between the amount of prayer, the amount of seeking, and the revival itself doesn't understand revival. Because every revival that's ever broken out was the manifest grace and mercy of God. 
Everyone say mercy. John Kilpatrick said the most powerful prayer you will ever pray in your life is the broken prayer for mercy. Not the ones where we declare all the word. The most powerful prayer you'll ever pray is that prayer for mercy. That says, I, I literally have no standing to, to be before you and to ask for what I'm asking for right now. I'm literally going to stand here and ask for something that's beyond what I have any reason to expect that you would answer. Hello. There must be eternal prayers that come from the hearts of men and women who have eternity in their hearts and are in touch with it. Prayers that believe that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. They ask for things that if they were to happen, nobody would look at any evangelist or any gifted minister or any congregation and say, isn't it wonderful what they did? But if it were to happen... Everyone would stand back and say, look what God has done. The authentic fear of the Lord coming upon people. People who ask for miracles. Everyone say miracles. What is a miracle? It's merely an abrogation of a natural law. A miracle is, is when God violates the natural laws He actually put in place. So we need somebody that will pray and ask God to violate his own laws of harvest for the church in America and send us a revival. If you were praying to the Lord of the harvest, if you were praying to the Lord of the harvest, the one whose authority exceeded even the laws and the natural order of things, would you ask for a miracle? Would you ask for a revival? Are we just going to sit and watch our society burn or are we going to ask for a revival? Say, so, well, brother, I, I, I don't think it's the season. It's always the season if you're talking to the Lord of the harvest. Remember that in, in Mark 11, they're walking along and he sees a fig tree and he approaches it and it says it has leaves on it, but there's no figs. And why is there no figs? It's not the season. It's not the season. Right? So, I mean, you, you don't go look for figs. It's not the season. So what does Jesus do? He goes and looks for figs. And then he does something really interesting. <laughs> There's no figs. He curses the tree and says, Let no one eat of you forever. And I, I always wondered about that. And, and I still do. But I think I... <laughs> I think I've wandered my way into a sort of a confused understanding of it, which is the best I can do. <laughs> Brian, it's the best I can do is a confused understanding. Um, I mean, because he could have just made some figs. I mean, he's Jesus. He could have said, figs grow. And, the, and they would have learned something. They would have learned, wow, Jesus can make figs grow. But they already actually knew that. <laughs> but by doing what he did... He told them that the season is not as important as you think it is. And he also told you something else that might strike a little fear in you. God will require fruit even when it's not the season for it. And that made me wonder a few years ago when I looked at that. 
if some of the things that I'm going to have to answer for at the throne of God, and I don't know how all that works. I know we're saved, and I mean, we're good. We're getting in. But I also know there's some stuff that they're going to deal with right there, <laughs> right? And there's, there's some fire involved. <laughs> and then we go, whoo, and we... I'm wondering if some of my stuff might have to do with the times I took no for an answer. God, would you do this? No. Okay. Because I, I raised some kids and trying to help with some grandkids and they don't always take no for an answer. Hello. And they hate because I said so. <laughs> there were some guys that brought their friend to a meeting that Jesus was doing to get him healed. And the house was full and the crowd was around the house and they couldn't get in. So they go up on the guy's roof and tear a hole in his roof. And I'm pretty sure that's illegal. And drop the guy down through the roof. And Jesus called it faith. We would call it a misdemeanor. <laughs> Jesus called it faith. That's what I'm talking about. Jackson's not in here, is he? Okay. He takes things a little more literally. <laughs> I didn't want him to go home and tear somebody's house up. Um, <laughs> just after revival. How would, you, how would you pray? I mean, pray illegal prayers with your hair on fire. That's what I'm talking about. Because you know what? I love the prayer movement, and I love the idea of going and sitting in a prayer room for 40 years. But some prayers need to be answered now. Some prayers we don't have 40 years. Some of you got situations going on in your families. Where you, actually, you needed an answer yesterday. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm wanting somebody to pray for me that I just prosper in the Lord and get closer to God, I'll call somebody at IHOP. But, but if, if I need an answer now, I got other people on my list I call. People that are going to call me later today and say, well, like they actually expected God to answer them. Hello, I was in seminary with a group of Baptists and they took my wife to the emergency room and I got a call and I went into class and they said, hey, you look like something's wrong. I said, they just took my wife to the emergency room. And these Baptists said, well, let's pray. They shut down the whole class to pray. Everybody prayed. Didn't know they did that. <laughs> Everybody prayed. And then we went to lunch, we came back, and everybody asked, how's your wife? What's going on with your wife? Hello. So we needed an answer then. You, you know what I'm talking about, amen? So Jesus, one day his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, 
John did a lesson on prayer for his disciples. And uh, so we'd like one too. So he gave them, and one of the places it's recorded is in Luke 11. We don't have to turn there for sake of time, but you know it. It's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And, and we get that, all right? And he takes them through that whole thing. But here's what's, here's what's beautiful about it. He, uh, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with that. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he doesn't stop with it. He takes them through the prayer and then says, now which of you having a friend? And he goes into this whole scenario about a guy who's, whose friend drops by at midnight and he doesn't have any food to give him. And it's part of the lesson on prayer. And so he goes, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll go to Wes's house. He's always got extra bread. So he goes over at midnight, knocks on the door. Says, hey, let me in. And he yells from the inside, no, go away. Everybody's asleep. Grandkids are asleep. If you wake them up, you know, go away. And he keeps banging on the door, asking for the bread, and he keeps telling him no. Now Jesus is teaching on prayer. Do you understand that? Jesus is teaching on prayer. He told him no. It's midnight. Why did he tell him no? He's his friend. If it were noon, he would have given it to him. He told him no because it's not the season. Right? It's not the season. It's midnight. Go away. I'm pretty well sure we got laws against that too. Continuing to bang on somebody's door at midnight when they've said go away. All right? This guy's racking up the misdemeanors. Right? <laughs> and, and they just keep, he keeps knocking. And it's interesting because he said, though he will not. Everyone say will not. Say will not. Say it real loud, will not. Say, not his will. Because if he will not, it's not his will. It was not his will. He said, though it wasn't his will, yet because he kept banging on the door, <laughs> said, all right, how much do you need? Jesus, anybody heard of him? The Lord of the harvest taught us that's how prayer works sometimes. Sometimes you need to take no and sit down. Well, how do I know? You just keep banging and if something bad happens, you stop. Right? I mean, you'll know. There's a point at which you'll know one way or the other, but don't stop short of knowing. Amen. And, and then Jesus walking along with his disciples. And, it, and it's amazing because Jesus had a pet name for his disciples. See, some of you, when you read the Gospels and Jesus says to the disciples, Oh, you have little faith. This is what you see. Jesus is going, Oh, you have little faith. No, I don't think it was like, I think it was like a pet name. I think he called him, Okay, come on. Oh, you have little faith. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, because they didn't understand about the bread, did they? And, uh, <laughs> So it's an inside joke we got going on. Everything's about the bread. And um, 
Oh, you have little faith. And so this Canaanite woman comes and starts begging. Lord, have mercy. Because my daughter has a demon. Come and, come and heal her. And, and Jesus, first, his first response is nothing. He, nothing. He, he just doesn't answer. How many of you hate that? Right? My father-in-law says sometimes you have to remind God that he has more time than you do. <laughs> Hello. But he doesn't answer, so she keeps screaming. And so the disciples do what church people are supposed to do. Say, Lord, do something. She's bugging us. Send her away. Lord, send all the annoying people with a lot of needs in the church away. Hello? I mean, you didn't have to get that quiet right there. Send them away. And what does the Lord say? She says, he said, look, no. I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we know that wasn't true for eternity, or we wouldn't be here today. But he's saying at this moment in time, the season we're in is I'm only going to the Jews. So what he's saying to her is, not only is the answer no, you don't even have a right to ask the question. You don't have a right to pray the prayer. The answer is no. Then he calls her a dog. I can just see these bigoted apostles. <laughs> Call her a dog. <laughs> She'll go away now. Nope. It's all right. I'm a dog. But even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. And I'm sure he's walking away and I just see the smile on his face because the whole thing's a setup for him. Right? She's going to learn something. They're going to learn something. And best of all, this daughter, because guess what? The daughter can't wait for the season. She's got a demon. Well, it's not the season for revival. Your city can't wait for the season to get here. They're dying now. He says, oh, daughter, great is your faith. Now think about this. He's got his, his 12 guys walking along that he calls Oh, you of little faith. And this Canaanite dog, he says, great is your faith. <laughs> They're like, what? That escalated in a hurry. He said, go your way. Your daughter's healed. And she was healed from that hour. That's what prayer looks like when you're praying to the Lord of the harvest. That's what prayer looks like that's not bound by seasons or derailed by the law of the harvest or worried about how much has been sown or have we, have we paid the price to get to that point? Are we at the tipping point yet? All of those things that we talk about in prayer. No, this is literally about somebody that, that had the 
to just say, no, I'm asking for mercy. And I'm actually going to stand here until you give mercy or you kill me. Because, because all of this, where we just come in and have a great church service and listen to a good sermon, and our culture, our whole culture, absolutely goes in the tank, is not okay anymore. And, and God has begun to move. So you can't even say it's not the season. Because a group of young people... A group of Methodist young people, although I happen to know that there are some IHOPU grads that went to Asbury, um, stood in the place of God. And have you watched the testimonies? No, there was like four or five of us that just didn't leave when chapel was over. Just, just four. Just four or five Gen Zs. I mean, they're not ever going to do anything, right? They're... I mean, they probably don't even love God, but they just, they just didn't leave. They just didn't leave. And a week later, I know from firsthand testimony from Nicole, you had to park a mile away. Just to get in. No preaching. No evangelists, no big names, just hunger and God. So why can't that be Arkansas? Let's stand. told them in prayer before church the Celts believe in what they call thin places they're the literal geographical places where God has broken in again and again and again like Jerusalem and Bangor and Asbury I think this is a thin place I think it's history shows that I think if there was a faith-filled cry for mercy that went up from this place, God would have mercy on a whole county. If, if, if a faith-filled cry for mercy went up from this place, I think God would have mercy on a whole county, John. And do, once again, what he's done before. And who knows, maybe this time we'll even get it right. 
If that's tugging at your heart, I'm opening the altar.